You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. As you probably know, we are starting a new series today, and I'm excited for that. I hope you're ready. Uh, And by the way, before I start, uh, make sure you grab one of these from the welcome table. We're going to celebrate communion right at the end of the sermon. Uh, We're going to go right into it. Um, So yeah, please have it handy. Thank you. All right. This is a message in a series um, that you may not need to use right away. Um, But I highly doubt that. (laughs) <laughs> With all the things happening in the world, I highly doubt that. But you will, let's just say that you're not going to use it right away. But you will certainly use it someday. So keep it close in your back pocket. Have you ever felt like you were in a desert? Like, I am in right now. And I'm referring to the desert of suffering. Because that's what we're going to talk about in this series. Now, I don't think that any of us would choose to be in the desert, would choose to be in the wilderness. I don't think any of us would choose to suffer. Let's just go out of our way and suffer. But for some reason, God often meets us in it. And it seems that there are gifts, there's, there are benefits, there, there are gifts that he has to offer us that can only be found in the wilderness, in the desert. Pretty tough to swallow, I know. The question is, are we going to receive them, these gifts, with humility? Or are we going to reject them with complaining? The theme of into the wilderness is deep and rich all throughout the scriptures. It is, and I'll prove it to you. The Hebrew word for wilderness is the word midbar. And it's used over 270 times in the Old Testament. And it can refer to an abandoned and desolate place. In the New Testament, we have the word wilderness about 50 times. Not as much, but that's still quite a bit. And there we have the Greek word eremas. Now, I think we can all agree that if we read all 320 passages and verses that talk about wilderness, being in the wilderness, we would certainly agree that they point to some kind of suffering. All of them. And that's a lot of suffering. <laughs> yeah. But the whole idea behind the series is to look at a few passages that talk about the wilderness because we're not going to be able to cover everything. We know that. And, and learn from what the Bible has to say about suffering. So we're going to look at you know, a few passages and just see what God has to tell us, has to say about suffering. Okay. And today we are going to look at the benefits or the gifts. How crazy. Gifts and suffering, what is going on, all right? That we get when going through suffering, when going through wilderness. But we're recipients of these gifts only if we choose to suffer well. So again, the question is, are we going to receive these gifts with, you know, humility and gratitude? Or are we going to reject them with complaining? And I, this is, I'm going to speak, this is real talk right here. I think most people... We'll choose the latter. We'll complain in suffering and we'll reject the gifts that God has for them. So we are going to, specifically, we're going to look at two different gifts today. My sermon looked a lot longer, but I, have to, I had to really edit. I, I had, I think, like four different gifts, but I, I trimmed it down to two gifts. You are welcome. Two gifts that God wants to give to us. And since this is, a, this is a thematical or topical series, we are going to look at two major passages in the Bible um, referring to these two gifts. And the first one is in Numbers, Numbers 11, and the second is in the book of Job, Job chapter 28. So let me just say right, right uh, from the beginning, the book of Numbers gets kind of a bad rap. I mean, it's probably because it's perceived as, a, as one of the boring books in the Bible, right? And I think part of that is because of the name. I mean, we call it Numbers, right? We call it Numbers. Um, because Moses counts all the people in, the, in, in Israel and you find how many soldiers are in the, in the army and so on and so forth, right? It can get a little bit, we would say, boring. And yet, interestingly enough, the Hebrew name for the book of Numbers is the word Benebar, which means 
into the wilderness. Interesting, isn't it? The name of our series. The book of Numbers is a book exclusively focusing on the nation of Israel and their journey through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Now, let me just say this in one way. We are in the wilderness at, with the whole world right now, to an extent. We have been for the last year and a half. The isolation that we dealt with right from the beginning of the pandemic that we were, we've been through. The curve of the coronavirus up and down, up and down, and the deaths and the fear and the uncertainty, the violence, the lockdowns, the mandates, and so much fear, so much suffering for so many people. And on top of being in the wilderness with the whole world, maybe your situation in this season is even more, quote unquote, special because there, there is other heavy stuff that you're dealing with at the same time. And here's what I want to say. When going through pain and suffering, when going through the wilderness, we tend to ask this question. How are we going to get through this? Because it hurts and it sucks. Or what are we going to, what are we, what are we going to do to get through it really quickly? Because this is very uncomfortable. But very few voices, very few people, when they're going through wilderness, ask this following question. So not just how can we get through it, not just how fast can we get to the other side, but what does God want to say through this? What does God want to do in our lives in this season of suffering? Not many people ask that question because we all want to, well, let's just get to the other side. This is really, really painful. I believe the wilderness could be a unique, could be a unique moment for us. It is a favorable context for God for some reason to do what only he can do in our lives, to change us, to mold us, to transform us, to make us more like Christ. And for some reason, he chooses to do it in the wilderness. Think about the caterpillar in the cocoon. It has this beautiful metamorphosis, and that change happens in the cocoon. It's a, it's a pressure cooker in this struggle. And maybe that's exactly you and your family in this season. Maybe your marriage is not doing too good. Maybe your relationships are fragmented and broken. Maybe you were diagnosed with cancer and some terminal illness. Maybe your children just broke your heart and just told you we're walking away from the Lord and caused so much brokenness and a ripple effect. Maybe you experienced a great loss. Maybe you lost your job and, and, and no prospect of employment. Fear is setting in. You feel overwhelmed by so many different pressures coming at you from all angles. And maybe the only question that you are asking is, how are we going to get through this because it sucks? I'm here to challenge us this morning to focus on another question more. What does God want to say through this? What does God want to do through this season in the wilderness? Believe it or not, we have this opportunity to meet with God in the wilderness. And I really think that the wilderness is a unique moment for us designed by God for our benefit. But we only reap the benefit of that if we choose to suffer well. So again, we are going to be looking at Numbers 11. But let me just set it up a little bit more for us. The Israelites have come out of slavery in Egypt. By this time, they have spent three months wandering around and wondering through the wilderness to get to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, it's a, kind of a, a big name, big place in a sense of, of that a lot has happened there. God, God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments there. Uh, we see that God gave them the instructions for the sacrificial system. They've, they uh, worship that idol. And there's a lot that happened here at Mount Sinai. And they have been camping at Mount Sinai for about a year now. Right in Numbers 11. So we pick up in Numbers 11. And this is three days after they decide to pick up and march out. So they are finally leaving Mount Sinai. And it should be a short two-week journey to Canaan, to the promised land. But if you know how the story ends, it's not going to be 
It's going to be longer than two weeks. It's going to be about 40 years. So Numbers 11, if you want to read it with me, we're going to read from verses 1 to 6 for now. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Teberah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble was, that was among them had a strong craving and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. You see this moment where the Israelites, they are three days, like I said, three days out of Mount Sinai and, and, and two weeks away from the promised land. So just three days out of Mount Sinai and they are already complaining. They are grumbling and they're murmuring. In this moment, though, it's interesting because they are complaining that they have been eating this manna from heaven for about a year now and they've gotten sick of it. But we should observe the fact that this isn't as simple as complaining, though, right? We can easily interpret this as rebellion against God because this was going for a long time and this was intense because God's anger is kindled against them and some people even died by fire as a result of this. So it's not just complaining. It's not just, ah, you know, my back hurts. Come on, God. No, no, no. This is intentional rebellion against God. As a side note, because we have to address this. I know that some people, this doesn't sit well with some people, right? I can't believe that your loving God would do something like that. How? No, I, I, I can't worship such a God. Here's what I would say about that. God is a good and righteous judge. That's right. Amen? Amen. And the Bible describes him as infinitely holy as well. Mm -hmm. But check this out. Predominantly, what we see from God is patience throughout Scripture and in our lives. We see long-suffering from God. We see putting up with us, putting up with people, extending grace and mercy upon grace and mercy and upon grace and mercy. However, that does not mean that God is not righteous when He does choose to punish people because of their rebellion and evil doing. Amen. That's Amen. the God of our Bible. That's, yeah. However, now let me quickly say this as well and then move on. If you are a child of God, God will not judge you. God doesn't have judgment or wrath for you. I want us to be really clear about that. He will not punish you for your sins because that would make a mockery of the cross. That would be a horrific insult to Jesus who paid the price in full with his own life and blood for your sin. But what God does sometimes, actually a lot of times, He will discipline His kids. He will discipline us because, because why? Because He loves us. It, it, it's, it's something that we would do to our kids as well if we truly love them. Amen. Amen. So back to our text, this is not just complaining for the things that they don't have. What they are neglecting to see is, is what they do have. And they have been given so much, so much. Just a quick summary of some of the things. What they do have is manna. I know it's not filet mignon steak and, you know, dry aged and grass fed or whatever. But, but, but they don't have the cucumbers from Egypt like they were saying. But God is sustaining them. Reading through Numbers, we learn that their clothes and sandals are, are not worn out. So God is miraculously making their clothes last longer than they would normally would. Right? God has made a covenant with them to protect them and, and, and defend them. And he already has done that many times by this point. And he's going to do it some more. Yes. To top it all off, the cherry on top of the cake, God's literal presence in form of a cloud is manifesting itself in the camp above the tabernacle on a daily basis. Yeah, so you don't have the five-star Egyptian cuisine restaurant. But God is clearly sustaining you and you have God by your side. Now the first gift that I want to point out to, the first gift, drum roll, that we see here is that God is giving a purifying 
fire. What? What kind of a gift is that? That is a gift from God. Purifying fire. Again, I know that the idea of God disciplining his people doesn't sit well with us or maybe none of us here, but other people. Uh, But maybe think about it like this. Purifying fire that God offers in this moment is not unquenchable fire. Moses prays, he goes before God as intercession before his people, and the fire comes down and God has mercy for his people. But it shows, what I wanted us to notice, it shows the seriousness that in the wilderness we will experience purifying fires. We experience this pressure cooker, right? And it it can purify us of those unclean parts in our hearts. Those unclean parts, those prideful parts of us, those petty parts of us, those difficult parts of who we are. In those moments, God wants to purify us. Yes. But this is a unique gift. I know that. And I know it's a difficult gift to receive, but it's a gift nevertheless that God wants us to have. Because he loves you too much to leave you the same. I've said this before, I'll say it again, but God is committed to our best and our highest. And He is willing to even use suffering to get you there, to get me there. Amen. The book of Revelation, Jesus addresses the church of Laodicea by first telling them how they saw themselves as rich, wealthy, and having need of nothing. Then, By exposing their true condition, that you are wretched, you are miserable, you are poor, blind and naked. We see this in Revelation 3, 14 to 20. I think we have the passage up there. Yeah. The church in Laodicea had had mistaken their financial stress for spiritual strength. You know, financial strength for spiritual strength. rather. But it looks like pride hid their true condition. Something happened there. And over time, pride hid their true condition. And if we read further, we see Jesus tells the Laodiceans how to get out of their deception. And he says this, by buying gold, God's gold, that's the only way to see the true condition of the heart. We see this in verse 18. Did you know that refined gold is pliable and flexible and soft? And free from corrosion or other substances. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. And did you know that it is only when gold is mixed with other foreign metals, like copper, iron, nickel, etc., that it becomes hard, less pliable, and more corrosive. This mixture of foreign metals, right, it's called an alloy. Now, the higher the percentage of foreign metals, the alloy, the harder the gold becomes. Conversely, the lower the percentage of foreign metals, the softer and more flexible gold becomes. Do we see the parallel here? Sin is represented here by the foreign metals, by this alloy, this substance alloy. And a pure heart is like pure gold that is soft and tender and pliable and flexible. One that God can use, one that God can use. Man. Hebrews 3.13 states that, the, that hearts are hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. This added substance, the, this mixture we are talking about, hardens our heart just as alloy hardens gold. This reduces and removes tenderness from our hearts, creating a loss of sensitivity. You just can't hear God anymore. Yet there's no, it hinders your ability to to even pray and be in the word. Our accuracy to see is darkened. This is a perfect setting for deception, for the devil to sweep in and ruin everything to steal, to kill, and destroy. Did you know that the first step in refining the gold Refining gold is grinding it. There we go. Grinding it into a powder and mixing it with a substance called flux. It's the flux. Then the mixture is placed, where? In a furnace and melted by intense heat. The alloys and all the impurities are drawn to this substance flux and then they are forced to rise to the surface. Because gold is heavy, it's a heavy metal, it will go to the bottom, 
and this, all the impurities will rise to the top and then can easily be removed, yielding and bringing forth a pure metal. Now look at what God says. Isaiah 48.10 Behold, I have refined you, not, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. First Peter 1.6.7 says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How powerful is that? God refines us, church, because He loves us through afflictions, through trials, through suffering, through hard times, through pain. It's the wilderness and the heat of the furnace, the heat of trials. And what he does is he separates the impurities of unforgiveness from your heart and from my heart. He wants to separate the impurities of immorality from our lives. He wants to separate the impurities of, of envy and anger and jealousy and, and all that is evil. That's what he wants to do. The reality and the truth is that sin easily hides where there's no heat of trials and affliction. Man. It just hides. <laughs> You will never know until you hit suffering and then, whoa, this is me? Oh, wow. Have you ever had those moments? Amen. I have them a lot of times. When everything in your life is going well in times of prosperity and success, when the kids are healthy, when you got money in the account, when you can pay the bills, even a wicked man will seem kind and generous. Right? Under the heat of trials, though, oh, oh, oh not so much. The impurities surface up. And you say stuff and you do stuff and you're like, what in the world? Well, the real you comes up. Amen. Amen. It, it's, it's hard to swallow. It's hard to, this is, don't kill the messenger. This is biblical. And the reality is that these impurities in our life are sometimes hidden from us, like I said. But they're not hidden from God. God knows all these things. So you now have a choice that will determine your future. You have a choice that will determine how you suffer. You can remain angry and unchanged. Blaming your wife and your pastor and friends, church and the people that you work with. Or you can see this impurity of sin for what it is. Sinful. And receive forgiveness from God. And, 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 and truly repent. Meaning a genuine change in our, in our lives. A, a, a Holy Spirit transformation in our lives. You have a choice. We have a choice. So God wants to refine us and He wants to, to, to give us this gift. Our desire as we go through suffering is not only to ask the question, how are we going to get through this? How can I see myself on the other side because I can't take the pain? This is an opportunity to meet with God and commune with God. So ask yourself this question. Father, what do you want to say through this? What do you want to do in my heart through this season of affliction? Yes, I'm listening. Yes, Lord. That's it. And as we come through the other side, because God will bring us to the other side. He's always with us. Not just barely making it. And wow, that was a crazy season. I hope I'll never have to go through that again. And I'm so glad that we've made it. But to make it in such a way to see God's hand at work. Yeah. Yeah. It will hurt. It'll, it'll be sucky, right? That's just, that's just the reality of things. But the point is to see God all the way in it and with you. That's it. So the gift of purifying fire. For the next gift that God wants to give us in the wilderness, we are going to be looking at a different book in the Bible. The famous book of Job, and we're going to look at Job um, chapter 28 for most of the time. So let me just read to you from chapter 1, just to kind of introduce the book and this gift. But we see this harsh and severe season of wilderness come over Job's life. And if you think that you're going through suffering, and I don't want to minimize your suffering, this guy is the, is the suffering's poster child, I kid you not. So Job, let's just read from... Uh, so Job, uh, first chapter, let's read from verse 13 to 19. 
Now, there was a, a day when his sons and daughters, Job's sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and, and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Okay. All right. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Okay, this keeps on going. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the what? The wilderness. And struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Hmm. Interesting that this word wilderness is introduced when it was the peak of the suffering. When the kids died. Job lost absolutely everything, and he was a good guy. But God calls him righteous. He was plunged into suffering. He was plunged into the wilderness. You may be asking, how can you possibly say that God is loving? And then if he is, how can you possibly say that God is in control? One or the other. And then what in the world could God possibly give to us in moments like that? What kind of a gifts are you talking about? Really? Fix my problem, God, and then we'll talk. We will try to answer some of these questions to some extent in the next few minutes as well. There's a, a deluge and inundation of information lately. I was looking for a podcast to listen to. A good one. And I, I, I was overwhelmed by how many good ones are out there. We have so much information out there. It's absolutely insane. Yep. So many sermons that we listen to. So many podcasts and seminars and books and this. So much information. And yet, E.O. Wilson said that we are drowning in information while starving for wisdom. Ovi, I thought we were going to talk about being in the wilderness and about suffering and some gifts that God wants to give to us in the wilderness. What does wisdom have to do with it? There's nothing in this world more inevitable than suffering. And wisdom has everything to do with it. We're going to look at this gift from a different angle. Imagine driving a car without a suspension system. You feel every little bump on the road, right? let alone potholes, especially if you live in Michigan. And it's only a matter of time before, you know, the car literally falls apart because you don't have a suspension, right? That's exactly what would happen to your life when you are in the wilderness, when you are going through suffering, not having wisdom. Your life will fall apart. It's just a matter of time. It's an understatement to say that Job experienced suffering in his life, right? Through agony and pain, profound contemplation, brokenness, heart-to-heart conversations, frustrating counsel of friends, prayer. But in the wilderness, check this out. He reaches chapter 28, which we're going to look at. In chapter 28, a lot of commentators say that this is kind of a poem. And it kind of feels like a poem. And it's, jo- uh, it's Job's apex of his insight, right? After he's suffered so much. And what he's actually saying is this. That suffering is a matter of wisdom. And this is huge now. Just, just hear to what I'm, I'm going to say next. This is what he says. Not in the same words, but I'm paraphrasing. He says, it requires wisdom to go through suffering. And if you handle suffering correctly, you will receive more wisdom and grow in more wisdom. So... It's an interesting gift, but at the same time, it's a responsibility. So the second gift that God wants to give to us is the gift of wisdom. Let me read to you a couple of verses from this chapter 28. Job's apex of insight, verses 12 and 15. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? 
It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighted out in silver. I love that. Over and over again, we find the Bible declaring that wisdom is extremely important. You find that in Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, so many other books. Here is the reason why. A lot of decisions, if not made right, can lead us to brokenness and destruction. So they require wisdom. And it's not just morality. Because a lot of the decisions that we have to make, morality will, will cover that. For instance, you know, if someone says, go lie to your wife. Well, you don't need wisdom for that. You need morality. You need to have a good character. No, I'm not going to lie to my wife, right? So, so it's not just morality. It's not just being super smart because we have, I know a lot of people that read and they're, they're just very articulate and I read too. And that doesn't mean that you're wise. You just have a lot of information up here. So not just knowledge and facts, and, but wisdom, which is very different. You need to have wisdom, but especially going through suffering. And by the way, science, technology, the big tech, and human reason cannot help with that. It cannot. We can't possibly find the wisdom to navigate through suffering in, in, in this life by using our own resources. You cannot. Yeah. You can't possibly know what to do in a situation where pain seems to overwhelm and overcome and everything seems dull and sad and hopeless and helpless. Science can't possibly tell you how to handle the death of your baby. It cannot. Where would you even start emotionally and mentally? Technology, no matter how advanced, can tell you how to cope with the fact that you were given six months to live. Human reason gets stuck at the thought of mass murder, child abuse, and the horrors of evil in our life, let alone help you through it. Take it on. Wisdom is not generated by our science, technology, or human reason, but it's from above. And Job says in this chapter 28, verse 13, listen to this, in regards to wisdom, man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. It's not. You know all you find here? A lot of information. A lot of articles and books, and, which is good. That can lead you to wisdom. But that alone is not wisdom. But awesome news for us, it is, it is revealed to us in the Word of God. Wisdom is revealed to us in the Word of God. Well, what exactly is revealed to us in the Word of God? Well, God's wisdom. And how He created this universe with it. This is what's revealed in, in the Word of God. God made the world according to wisdom. There's a fabric to it, to the world that God created. There's a pattern to the world that God created. There's a, an order to it. There's a physical, moral, and spiritual order to the world that God had created. Amen. We can actually see this. Let me just read you a few verses from, from this uh, chapter 28, verses 20 to 28. Just, listen, just sit back and listen. I love the poetry here, but it just points to how sovereign and in control God is. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and he tested it. And he said to the human race, and check this out, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Wow. Do you know what else is revealed to us in God's word? Things about God. <laughs> his attributes, his heart, his purposes, his, his loves, the way he's designed us, the, the purposes he's designed us for, how we function best. And do you know why that's important when walking through suffering? The more you know about God and his heart, the more you understand who you are and how you're meant to live, and the easier it is to walk through suffering. Okay. 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 And applying all of that to your life, that right there is wisdom. 
Let's quickly look at some of the things that are vital to know when going through suffering in His Word. It's going to get a little theological, but just bear with me. He is the creator of the universe. We need to know that as we're going through suffering. And He is infinitely sovereign, meaning He created the world perfectly and He's in complete control of every detail in this, on this universe. On the other hand, we see that everything is fallen. You need to know this as well as we're going through suffering. That's a huge one. Because of men's rebellion. Because we see evidence of that all around us. So much evil in our world. We all rebelled against God. And because of our rebellion and sin, the world as we know it changed. It is full of sickness and evil and corruption and death and suffering. It's simple really. We choose to sin. We choose to suffer. And we've all done that and still doing it. It, But but God is still sovereign. He's still in control of everything. Even after the fall. Even through this period. He's still in control. What else? Well, God, although sovereign over everything in the universe. You need to know when going through suffering. That He does not generate evil. He does not. But He allows it to bring His perfect will to completion. James 1, let me just throw a verse at you. James 1, 13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Some things God generates, oh yes. Meaning he's the author of, but other things he allows. A good example would be Genesis 50, 20. This is Joseph saying to his brothers who sold him into slavery, you meant this evil against me, but God meant it for good. We see that beautiful tension in there. At the same time, when going through suffering, through the wilderness, it is wise. It is of utmost importance to know that God is loving and God is good. Important to know that God gave His best. As I said last week, Jesus Christ on the cross paying for our brokenness and sin so that we would be saved. Additionally, He is infinitely good because He promises that everything that happens in our life, it is for our own good, for our own benefit, even if it hurts. Bring all these things in when you go through suffering. But at the same time, we would be foolish and not wise to think that we are not limited. Oh, we are so limited and finite. And therefore, some things are hidden from us. Actually, a lot of things are hidden from us. Verse 23. God understands the way to it and he alone knows where it dwells. We don't know. And you have to know all of these truths. All of these doctrines that I just listed to be wise enough to handle suffering. The more you know about God, the more you know who He is, the more you know and experience that He is loving, good, righteous, holy, sovereign, the easier it is to journey through suffering. Let me try and explain why this is so crucial. I notice that there's people who go through suffering who become very bitter. It's probably most people. They become very angry. Resentful, exasperated, and enraged, and yet others who become more humble through suffering, who become more like Christ, more self-controlled and more kind. And, and why is that? Why is it? I came to realize something, and I was reading this one pastor who put it this way, and I'm paraphrasing, kind of the same idea that I was thinking of. When suffering, you have to think of two main things. You have the pain of suffering, and then you have the shock of suffering. So pain of suffering and shock of suffering. The pain of suffering is just the pain, and no one can bypass that. If you lose your health, well, you're going to feel pain, right? If you, if you lose a loved one, you're going to feel some pain. There's no bypassing that. If you cut your finger just a little bit, there's some pain. There's no bypassing that. But I found that people who are overthrown and overwhelmed by suffering, a lot of them are the people who could not deal with the shock of suffering. Not the pain. The shock. Why is this happening to me? I'm a good person. I haven't killed anyone. Why is this happening to me? I can't believe it. I can't believe, Lord, why would you allow this in my... Me? 
That's the shock of suffering. You're shocked. Wow, it happened to me. Oh, no. You cannot do anything about the pain because you'll feel it. But you can do everything about the shock. Everything. The shock comes from, and I'm just going to come out and say it because I'll put myself in that category. It comes from being a fool mm. and not wise. Mm. You're right. That's it. That's it. It comes from not having a good theology, a good theology of the creation that God, you know, that we read in the Bible, a good theology of the fall, good theology of God's sovereignty and all the things that we listed two minutes ago. Not being wise enough to bring this truth into your everyday life and to navigate with it through the difficulties of life. It's because we don't have a rich and biblically balanced understanding of how life works. Because that's only found in the Bible. Remember I mentioned last week that they say that your theology is only as good as your worst day. If your theology doesn't come out in your actions, on your lips, right? In suffering, you never really believed it. It was never a part of your life, no matter how much you preach it, no matter how much you talk about it. That is hard, hard to take in. So allow me to spell it out again and say that the source of wisdom for us is the word of God. And it comes in different forms through the Bible, through the Holy Spirit and Jesus himself. So the source deals with the shock, right? The Bible deals with the shock of suffering as we notice. But what about the pain? Where is the wisdom to navigate through that? Lord, what do we do with all the pain that we feel? So what happens if you're not shocked that you're suffering? And, and you know, your theology is smack down congruent to the Bible. And you're right on. You're like, I'm not, I'm not, man, I'm not shocked that I'm suffering, man. God allowed it. Lord, bring it on. I'm crying and I'm broken. But Lord, I know you're right in it, right? So what if you're not shocked about the, you know, about, you know, wow, it happened to me. You will understand. And just a side note. Actually, it seems that sometimes you turn to God and that's when things turn even more sour. Don't you feel that? Sometimes, right? Interesting. Let's, let's move on. The pain is still there, right? The pain is still horrible. How do we handle the pain? Where do we put the pain? I believe the answer is in verse 28. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. What an interesting way to end that. How, how do you mean that, Obi? What, what, what? The English word for this word fear doesn't seem to uh, make sense for us. We think it means to be scared of, to be afraid of something. And yet, there's an element of that 100%. This is how one, one pastor put it, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. There's a scariness in the presence of something bad, right? You're like, oh, oh no, I'm going to lose my life. Oh no, I'm going to get hurt, right? It consists of the fact that you're afraid of something to some level, right? But there's also a scariness in the presence of something incredibly good. There's also a scariness in the presence of something incredibly beautiful, incredibly wonderful. Let me explain why. There's something scary about it. Do you know why? Because it's, it's, it's threatening to us. Because it will expose our flaws and our insecurities and our deepest secrets, our sin, right? And because we think we're going to lose control at that moment. No, 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 I don't want to lose control. But we have to submit to it, right? Because you know it's, it's infinitely good and beautiful because it would be wicked and sinful not to submit to it. And of course, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm referring to Jesus Christ, the infinitely good God, the incredibly loving Savior, the infinitely righteous King, the infinitely holy Lord. And that the only fitting response when we encounter him would be dropping like dead at his feet. It's the same reaction that John had in Revelation. And I love this. Revelation 1.17, when he saw Jesus, this verse captures exactly what I'm trying to say. This is what John said when, when he saw Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But, but, he laid his hand on me saying, fear not. 
first and the last. Did you catch that? He says, fear not, referring to his love. Hey, I'm with you, fear not. I, I got you. And then he says, I'm the first and the last, referring to the key. I'm in control. I'm sovereign. Kind of like almost like a formula for our suffering. Know that he's infinitely good and know that he's infinitely in control. That's all you need to know. But then how does the fear of the Lord in the context of suffering, what does it mean? What, what? It means the scary level, unconditional trust in the love in the love of God in the midst of darkness. That's what it means. I don't know what's happening. I don't know where I'm going. It's scary, but I'm holding on to you, God, somehow. It means the scary level, unconditional trust that God is loving you, even though there are no signs in sight of such a thing. When everything around you is bleak and desolate and dark and helpless, let me share why this is extremely important. That's the only way we're going to become better through suffering and not bitter, destroying ourselves. Elizabeth Elliot, Christian author and speaker, the wife of Jim Elliot, maybe you've heard of her, the missionary who got killed by the Auka tribe in eastern Ecuador. She tells a story when she was staying at a farm in the highlands of Wales. It was a sheep farm. And once a year, the sheep had to be dipped into a big container of antiseptic, disinfectant. Otherwise, the, the sheep will literally be eaten alive by parasites and insects, right? Try to picture that. She would watch these sheep being put in the tank, this huge container of um, antiseptic. And she started to feel sympathetic and bad for the sheep. And, and this is what she said. One by one, the shepherd would seize the sheep as they struggled to come out of the container. Obviously, they were fighting for their life. Like, we're drowning. You're killing us. What are you doing? If they would try to climb out of the container on the other side, the dog would come and snap at their faces to force them back under. If they would try to come up the ramp toward John, the shepherd, he would catch them, spin them around, force them under again, and hold them ears, eyes, and nose totally submerged. As I watched him to do this, I realized I had many experiences in my life that made me feel sympathetic to those sheep. A number of times I felt that the great shepherd, the Lord, was doing the same thing to me. He was holding me underneath, and I thought that I was drowning, and when I asked, I didn't get a word of explanation. Let me tell you why this metaphor is absolutely if I were the shepherd and I saw my sheep that I love so much scrambling, yelling for their life, you're killing us. You're not a good shepherd. You're horrible. You want to drown us. But no, I love you. Yeah. That's why I'm doing this. That's right. That's right. I mean, you love your sheep and you would give them an explanation. So go ahead. Give them an explanation. Go ahead. Talk to your sheep. Will they get you? I can guarantee you something. They will not be consoled or comforted by your words. Why? Because they are sheep. And you are a shepherd. A different order of reality. Totally different. Different language. Different, a totally different order of reality. And yet if those sheep do not trust their shepherd, they are going to die inside. They are going to suffer in a way that destroys them and not save them. Ears, eyes, nose, whole hand underneath. Have you ever felt like that? Do you feel like that now? You feel like you're drowning and somehow you still believe that God is your shepherd. But because of some unknown reason, he is not answering to you. And if you don't trust the shepherd in the dark, you are going to die inside, I guarantee. People get so jaded by suffering. You meet them all the time. They're so bitter and angry. People get so jaded by life and suffering that they will never recover inside. Now, if you can trust the shepherd in the midst of suffering, in the dark, it will make you wise. It will make you wiser. And that's the whole point. 
of what I just said. So my final challenge for us in question is, go ahead, do it. Let's trust our shepherd. I don't know what's going on in my life a lot of times. Especially when suffering hits, the only thing I know is to trust in him because he knows. Trust in him in the dark. He knows exactly what he's doing. And the question is, how? How am I going to do that? Well, God writes in our script of our history and life some information about himself. It's called the most amazing book in the world, the Bible. In other words, he reveals himself to us in the word. And through the Holy Spirit that brings his word to life in our hearts. We've talked about this. But let me just hit it from a different angle. But let me be real to you this morning. You will will never be able to hang on when you feel like you're drowning in the dark, in the wilderness, just by telling yourself, hey man, just hang in there. Go read some books on theology. Go read some books on God's sovereignty. It's probably not going to work. That's all cognitive. It's all in your mind. You have to see Jesus Christ and his unconditional love for you first. To be able to make a connection with the information that you have in your, in your head, right? In order to trust Him when He was in the dark, when He was in the wilderness. You, you need to be able to, to just trust in that. His unconditional love for you when He was in the dark, when He was in the wilderness. Holding on in spite of His tears turning into blood. Holding on in spite of the torture, beating and mockery and the suffocation and the blood flowing down his battered body. In spite of the spear on his side, in spite of the fact that he was totally submerged and abandoned. And most of all, separation from the Father's love. Now here is someone that has been totally submerged in suffering and in pain. Jesus Christ. And he went under because of divine justice. Because of wrath. And He did it for us. He did it for you. And He did it for me. Because He loved you so much. And He wanted to save you from your sin, rebellion, and bring you into the presence of God. Now when you see Him being true to you, in the dark, on the cross, when you truly realize that and grasp that with your heart, you can be trusting of His love. Because there's the ultimate example of it on the cross. And proof of it on the cross. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.